Hey friends, this is Mark Oppenheimer. I'm the host of this podcast, Unorthodox, which we humbly call the universe's leading Jewish podcast. Every year around this time, around the Hanukkah season, we get an influx of new listeners. And so this message is for those of you who have just discovered our podcast, who are brand new to the podcast Unorthodox, which is a production of Tablet Magazine. Uh, First of all, welcome. Second, let me just give you a quick primer on what you're about to hear. This show is tri-hosted, co-hosted, tri-hosted, I'm not sure, by the three of us, me, Mark Oppenheimer, and my co-hosts, Liel Leibowitz and Stephanie Butnick. Liel grew up in Israel, though he sounds totally American now. And Stephanie grew up in Great Neck on Long Island, though she sounds perfectly comprehensible now as well. And um, we do a bunch of stuff on this show. We uh, interview a Jewish guest every week. We interview a special Gentile of the week whom we put in the Gentile hot seat and we ask questions about them and they ask questions about things about Judaism that may have always confused them. And then we also share the news of the Jews. We do a roundup of Jewish news from Tel Aviv to Telluride, from Beersheba to Beverly Hills to Brookline, all over the world, just interesting, funny stories about what's going on with Jewry. We take a lot of listener mail, and you'll hear some of that. And then we conclude by giving some mazel tovs, some farewells, some shout outs to people who are having milestones in the world around us. So anyway, it's a great time. We're so happy to have you on board. You are now a member of our listener body, the audience that we lovingly call the J Crew. So if you're new to the J Crew, welcome, enjoy the ride. And a happy, happy Hanukkah. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by the whole gang. We're all here. Tablet editor at large, Leah Leibovitz. And tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hanukkah, oh Hanukkah, come light the menorah. You know how we do it in our family? Because little kids used to mispronounce it. Hanukkah, oh Hanukkah, come light the menorah. And it's <laughs> it's still the menorah in our family. Right after you recite the Shamu, you light the, the menorah. Everybody knows that. <laughs> it's like every prayer has been Oppenheimerized. By the way, all this is pronounced by like seven adorable humans in matching pajamas. <laughs> too much. Our Jew of the Week is Sarah Podemsky. She is the indigenous and Jewish Canadian actress who stars on Reservation Dogs, a comedy you can see on Hulu that follows the exploits of a bunch of native teens on an Oklahoma res. It is all kinds of awesome. Totally hilarious. You want to go binge it right now. Actually, you want to listen to the interview with her and then go binge it. And our Gentile of the Week, a returning G-O-T-W, is New York Times op-ed columnist Ross Douthit, who joined Liel to talk not about politics or the times or anything, but about his new book, The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery about his battle with chronic Lyme disease. In a little news of us Jews, the three of us, for the first time ever, I think, co-authored tri-authored an op-ed. Uh, it was in the Washington Post. It was Butnick's idea. Stephanie, l- let's chat about the op-ed. Well, the headline is Hanukkah isn't Jewish Christmas. Stop treating it that way. Um, we came out strong after the last week's episode basically saying like, stop with the Hanukkah pillows and the Hanukkah stockings and like all the stuff. Can I just say, this is such a great little window into our inner emotional lives because we literally have a show, which is our livelihood, in which we talk nonstop for an hour every week. And yet, as the Wasn't show ended, enough. we could stop talking. <laughs> we had to continue the talking and we had to like take the talking to like the national media. Well, you thought we had enough for one episode, but we actually had enough <laughs> <laughs> for one episode. Actually, maybe two, because this is also a Hanukkah. This is a mid-Hanukkah episode, not specifically about Hanukkah, obviously. And then an op-ed in the Washington Post. And then I will say that I was 
quoted in a different piece in the Washington Post this week, also about Hanukkah by the journalist Michelle Borstein. So we are like all over the place. Well, we will not stop talking about Hanukkah. <laughs> we just can't. And yes, but I will say, you know, that part of the point of our piece was like, you know, Hanukkah is actually not that big of a deal. Like that's one of the points we make. Of course, we say like, stop the commercialized Christmas creep. But it was funny because I basically spent this whole week like posting all these stories and being like, stop the Christmas, blah, blah, blah. And then tonight it was Hanukkah. And all of a sudden, Edith Cohen, my four-month-old daughter, is wearing like a latka t-shirt that someone sent her. And I was like, I'm not going to not put this on. And she's looking at me being like, okay, mom. Right. Don't believe everything you read in the media, apparently. <laughs> and I sent you guys the Oppenheimer photo of all of us in, in the snowmen. And uh, Liel actually went to communion tonight. So it's basically the, all, The Leibowitz you know, children had to sit through a speech about how grateful we are for Jews having the courage to stand up to their beliefs with arms. So Edith's in her Laka shirt. My father-in-law got her a, like a little menorah and we lit the candles Aww. together. And I was like so deeply moved by it after basically spending like the whole week being like, oh, it's Hanukkah. It's no big deal. Don't make a big deal out of it. And I was like, oh, right. this is actually beautiful. And it wasn't because there was like any real religious significance. It was more like, oh, this is something I did with my parents. Like it was just, it was deeply moving to do this with my child. Like, I don't know. I just found found the whole thing very beautiful. And I don't know. I feel things. By day four, you're like walking by a Greek diner and shooting them dirty looks. Like, see, Edith, we see, Edith, won. This is why we have to fight. That's right. Um, Stephanie, I'm not sure I would agree that it's not because there was any religious significance. Insofar as I basically think religion is just ancestor worship. Doing the thing that you used to do with your parents that your parents did with their parents, is I don't, that's pretty profound. And singing the blessings. It was really, really sweet. Did you and Ben, you had what, two years, three years of marriage before Edith came along? I don't remember anything before Edith came along. You have no um, idea. Yeah, we got married, married in 2017. Yeah. So like three, whatever, how long it's been. Did you guys light the candles together as a, as a childless couple? Honestly, I like don't like fire and I'm very, candles freak me out. So I like, we would do it like one night each time. But now I'm right. like, oh, I, I think thing, I know things change a little bit, I think for sure. When you're like, oh wait, what are, what are the traditions I want to keep now? I remember the kind of like funny awkwardness of being two fairly newlywed couples with no kids being like, oh, we're all Jews. We should light the Hanukkah candles. And I'm a little ashamed that we thought there was anything awkward or weird about it. And maybe Sid didn't. Maybe I'm speaking for myself here. But there is a way in which once you have a kid in the house, it legitimizes everything, right? Like I could get up tomorrow and put on to fill in and I could turn to David and be like, this is what we men do, right? It's like everything, once you have a child to transmit it to, loses its awkwardness, loses its self-consciousness. Mark, that is such a beautiful insight in a way. I've been thinking about this a lot. I think you're completely right. And I think it's completely tragic because, of course, by the time said child comes along, the thing that you do, if you hadn't done it before, is kind of weird and awkward and performative. And you yourself are sort of second guessing. I mean, you're also, I think, almost right about the thing that you said before about old religion being ancestor worship. I mean, for us, it is literally, I mean, we have the Messorah, right? The, the tradition that, you know, this great big part of the Mishnah, Pirkei Avot, that you and I like so much, begins with this long list of like, guys, this is where the Torah comes from. And it's this whole long list that actually tells you how you physically are connected to this chain. So I think that's kind of exactly the great big pity of it all is, is the notion that so many of us only wake up to this great big tradition only when we understand that it's now our part in the relay race to pass it along. And of course, some of the the deepest Jewish cats I know are are people without children. I mean, I know some Jewish adults who never had children who are totally central to the way I think about Jewish practice. And so there's nothing predetermined about any of this. And I guess I would I would push back only in insofar as even if you're a, fa- a household with firmly established traditions before 
children come along, or even if you're a single person with firmly established traditions who then gets partnered, it always changes something, right? Right. When the family configuration changes, when the household sure. changes, it's always an opportunity. It's a window to, it's a, it's a way to like, to step through a new door. And I don't know, like- Look at you I, being cheerful and shit. I, I just basically want to say, I totally- share that, that emotion with Stephanie Butnick. I feel, I feel what you felt tonight. And I think it was awesome to hear about like the Coens, the three Coens lighting the candles. I think um, it's great too. Don't get me wrong. I think any, anything that leads you closer to more practice and observance is great. I just wish that there was some kind of, uh, I mean, maybe a podcast or something that taught you more about <laughs> if this. If only tradition. there were a gateway podcast. But, that just You know what? This kind of thing reminds me so much of the respect I have for intermarried couples. Because if I was married to someone who wasn't Jewish, from the start, I would have had to say, here's what's important to me. Hanukkah candles. Like, yeah. Ben and I were like, oh yeah, Hanukkah's tonight. If I had to say, oh, Hanukkah is my time, then I need to know when Hanukkah is. I need to get the candle. Like, that's on you to basically do and to both identify and follow through on. And that's something I think about a lot. Our new rabbi at our shul, Eric Woodward, who's an amazing guy, deep soul, and apparently a great cook, is himself a child of intermarriage. His mother's an Ashkenazi Jew and his father is, I believe, half Chicano and they're Mexican Catholics. His father had a parent who's a Mexican Catholic. And so, I mean, he's brought this whole kind of discussion. I mean, he himself halakhically Jewish, but grew up in this interfaith home and didn't really come to Judaism in a, I think in a very serious way until getting to Williams College, which is not the most Jewish place. And I, I will be happy to receive all the angry mail from, from Eves. Uh, let me remind you, I'm married to one. And I think, I think she'd back that up, that it's a place, you know, out in the woods with lots of Gentiles chopping wood. And you have to, you get there and you make Judaism for yourself if you're going to engage it. So you're saying Vassar is Jewish and Williams is Goyish. (laughs) (laughs) Colby, Jewish. Bates, Goyish. We could do this with all of, all of Neskak, we can do this with. But instead of doing that, should we, should we do some news to the Jews? I feel like it's been a while since we've done a good old traditional N-O-T-J. If we're going to do news of the Jews, we might as well go right to the heart of Jewish earth. And no, I don't mean Maya Sharim. I don't mean B'nai Brock. I don't mean Williamsburg. I mean Beverly Hills, where apparently there have been some anti-Semitic flyers posted around town, as it were. I want to read from the CBS affiliates website. At least one Beverly Hills resident awoke Sunday to flyers on their front yard containing propaganda style hate speech. And now police are investigating. The flyer, a single eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, contains propaganda style hate speech related to the COVID pandemic and the Jewish people, police said in a news release. Okay, uh, this drove me crazy for ways that probably you guys can guess already, which is the well-meaning habit that the media now have of never repeating what the slurs are, right? Like they don't (laughs) want to say, the flyer said, kikes with space lasers gave us COVID, right? So instead they're going to say it repeated propaganda style hate speech. But as a Jewish podcaster, I need to know, what are they saying about us for the love of God? I mean- They're claiming that Donna Martin cheated on her exams and shouldn't be allowed to graduate, <laughs> Beverly. <laughs> it's, it's also weird because we know that the it's an eight and a half by 11 inch piece of paper. So we have like a lot right. of specifics about some of the things. Also, 
propaganda style hate speech, right. which I actually not familiar. I mean, is I don't there know like, that. It's like, it's like animal style in the In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like kosher style. style. It's like oh, kosher yeah. style. They didn't they didn't check for the heckshire, but they know it's pretty <laughs> anti-Semitic. <laughs> it's propaganda Also, it's propaganda style hate speech related to the COVID pandemic and the Jewish people. What? It's that none of the Jews in the building that day came out with COVID. The Israeli embassy had told all the Jews there was COVID in the building. How funny would it be if it actually turned out to be like a list of all the Nobel winning Jewish scientists who like are fighting COVID <laughs> that some Jew printed out and gave to his granddaughter. I'd be like, oh my God, I think oh. they mean it in an anti-Semitic propaganda style fashion. Wait, producer Josh Cross just sent us the flyer. It literally says, Every single aspect of the COVID agenda is Jewish. Oh, I was completely right. I <laughs> oh, was and it's about, oh, right. this is bad. It's about all the, there's a, the top half is all these people who work at the CDC, like Rochelle Walensky, and it says Jewish next to them. Oh my God, this is bad. And also BlackRock CEO and president are named on here. And it says BlackRock and Vanguard are the two largest shareholders of both Pfizer and GlaxoSmith. Oh my God, this is really weird. We're literally Shabbos Goy carrying out the will of the Jews wittingly or unwittingly. That is creepy. Wow. Although to even know wow. the phrase Shabbos Goy and use it in like a semi-correct term, that's kind of <laughs> impressive. I suppose. Well, I just want to, I mean, I will get accused of minimizing this stuff, but at least one Beverly Hills resident awoke Sunday. Now, you got to figure if a hundred people got this flyer, they would say dozens, right? Like, you, you know, if at least one got it, what that means is one got it. Now, maybe a few other people got it and never told the police. But you do have to wonder if just one guy, right? If just if just Donna Mart, if just Tory Spelling got this flyer, is it just somebody who was having a a land dispute over the fence? Is it her neighbor who's just mad at her and decided to do a lot of late night internet research? Here's why I think this theory is completely correct because the piece also goes on to say the flyer is enclosed in plastic bags containing rice. So someone put this flyer in a bag. In With some kitneyot. Exactly. It's like, take this Ashkenazi <laughs> Jews who can't eat this in Passover. But do you remember those like those banners that were hanging down over the freeway like last year? Yes. And they said Goyam TV on them. This flyer has this like weird GTV logo and it says goyamtv.tv, which is a website I'm not going to go to because I care about my computer. And it's really weird. These are the people who refer to themselves as Goyam and, and like... It's it's almost going so creepy TV. because you're like, <laughs> that's for us. What's, what's like, in going yeah. TV like never-ending reruns <laughs> of designing women with Delta Burke? Like, what's going TV? But this is I don't know. I don't know. I feel like it was funny until I saw the flyer and I'm like, this is creepy. It's like when people mail things to Tablet's office that's like pictures of all the like media people who are Jewish. And you're like, right. yeah, we know. Am I allowed to have a little bit of gratitude to these people that they're that they're Yiddishists? I love it when they culturally appropriate our stuff. It's like and all these Jewish shlemiels are making us their shlemazels. Stop with the schwanzing of a man. My God, what is this? They're like, we too want to bring the word schwanz back. Right. Oh my God. If we could just in 5782 get people saying schwanz again. Completely verklempt by the Jews. Well, speaking of the Jews, let's go uh, to the other Jewish town from Beverly Hills to Jerusalem, to Yerushalayim. This from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Observant Jews increasingly like to use olive oil in their Hanukkah candelabras instead of wax candles because of its significance in the holidays story. Those who follow suit want only 100% pure olive oil. In response, some producers have been diluting their olive oil with cheaper vegetable oils without disclosing all the ingredients and luring consumers in with lower <laughs> prices. The product is still kosher, but is unacceptable for the observant Jews who want only pure olive oil in their menorahs. You can just see them 
you know, cracking open the so-called pure olive oil and pouring it in the little cups. Somewhere in Beverly Hills, an anti-Semite is clapping slowly. (laughs) (laughs) The sound of one anti-Semitic hand clapping as they smell a little just tinge of canola oil or coconut oil or something cutting the pure olive oil. It's oil shotness is what it is. (laughs) And uh, because we always want to end on a happy note, our favorite novel from last summer, uh, Fleischman is in Trouble by... uh, multi-time Jew of the Week, Taffy Brodesser-Agner, has been cast, according to all the news, according to all the the, the trades, as they say. And uh, Stephanie Butnick, how how is this news coming down to us? I want to take us to Vanity Fair, where Hilary Busis has the headline, Breaking, Jewish Actors Cast in Show About Jews. And uh, (laughs) Jesse Eisenberg has been cast as the titular Fleischman, um, the main character of the novel, who is just like quite a character. And then Lizzie Kaplan, the great Lizzie Kaplan, is cast as the friend role journalist Libby Epstein, who is not Fleischman's estranged wife, but his his sort of like old college friend. And it's it's I'm I'm excited. I really like both of them. I loved this novel and I don't think I'm throwing Rebecca under the bus by saying that she didn't finish her summer reading for high school because she was so busy finishing this novel. And uh, it, it was, it's really, it's quite engrossing and I'm super excited for this. We had a discussion at the Tablet editorial meeting uh, maybe a month ago about um, how important is it that Jews play Jewish characters? And I, I kind of sat that one out because, um, I don't know, because my feelings were just welling up inside me and they, they, they thwarted my, my ability to speak them. They were so, they were too deep. I couldn't, words couldn't find them, but I can only say that I feel like Jesse Eisenberg will be good in this. Let me leave it at that. I don't know. You guys, are you guys pumped for this? Well, it's an interesting conversation about representation that, that's happening so broadly and, and an important conversation, obviously. And then when it comes to Jews, it's actually a little bit more complicated because there's a lot of people who say, who cares if Jews are not cast in Jewish roles? Who cares if Catherine Hahn is playing Joan Rivers? But then there's a lot of people who are like, wait, why isn't Deborah Messing playing Lucille Ball? <laughs> like, why, right. how did someone else get that role? So I would actually love to throw this one to the J. Crew. Should Jewish parts be played by Jewish actors? What's the story? What are your thoughts? 914-570-4869 or write to us unorthodox at tabletmag.com. By the way, the music that you're hearing throughout this episode is from our friends, the hip-hop artists and singers Nissim Black and Kosha Dills. It's their new song, The Hanukkah Song 2.0. And you can find a link to it in our show notes. Yeah. Look, flickering lights, eight nights full of donuts Potato lockers and lachimes for the grown-ups The Hanukkah has a shine when it glows up Running inside, it's already getting colder Hey, Stephanie and Liel, we have not seen so much of each other lately And when we've seen each other, we've just wanted to eat bagels and hummus and drink And we haven't talked about the fact that our podcast, thriving as it is, needs money to keep going. What do you think? Should I remind the listeners that there is a donation drive going on? It's the most beautiful time of the year. Give us your money. Ho, ho, ho. Yes, no, this is the time of the year where we do that weird thing and ask for money. But we're obviously a nonprofit. So every penny, every shekel that we get goes back into our editorial process and goes into producing not just Unorthodox, but all the other shows that we do now. And it just means so much to us, even more. More than that, it means that you are committed to us and you sort of are investing in us. And uh, that's really, really exciting for us. So what we said this year was we don't care how much you give, but we want to get a thousand givers. So we want a thousand of you to give. So I'm not exactly sure where we are now, but we're not there yet. And we also said that if you give $180 or more, you will get to select a book authored by one or more of us. That's right there in a drop down window when you go to give. So we kept doing this through the pandemic at a time when our revenues really crashed because we weren't on the road doing live shows. And uh, 
uh, we never for a second thought of stopping. So please go to bit.ly slash give to unorthodox. That's bit.ly slash give to unorthodox. And we thank you. Years ago, we fought against the great fire. Now we order in veggie burgers and great diners. Stay working on yourself. Be a miracle. Don't retire. Put the oil in the lamp and be a lighter. Sarah Podemsky is a Canadian actress. She is on Reservation Dogs. It follows the exploits of four indigenous teenagers in rural Oklahoma who steal, rob, and save some of their money in order to realize their dreams of getting off the res and away to the far-off Eden, California. Sarah plays Rita, the single mother of one of the teenagers, Bear. Again, you can find it on Hulu, but but don't listen to it on Hulu until you've heard this interview with our Jew of the Week, Sarah Podemsky. Sarah Podemsky, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We are so, so excited to have you. And there's so much to talk to you about. There's your new show, Reservation Dogs. There's your artisan work. There's everything about you. But I want to start somewhere really, really important. I want to start with your Instagram bio. My Instagram bio says Ashkenazi Anishinaabe. Ashkenazi is my father's side. My father and his grandfather were Polish Jews. And then the Anishinaabe is the Ojibwe side. My mom, who's from the prairies in Saskatchewan. I did it recently because there's been a lot of controversy with, (laughs) I guess, some people falsifying their Indigenous identities. So it was just kind of a way of saying, if you have any questions, it's right here in the bio. So we tell us a little bit about those two backgrounds. My parents met very, when they were very, very young, just like two hippies in Toronto. My mom had recently hitchhiked her, her way from Saskatchewan. And my dad grew up in like a very Jewish home, Jewish neighborhood in Toronto and you know, my mom came from the from the prairies, from a community there. And so it was a real, you know, clash of cultures. But it was really important for them to raise us in a house that, you know, understood these two cultures that we came from. My parents got divorced when I was really young and then my dad raised me. So it was important for him to have us continue to be involved with the Indigenous community. But we essentially like grew up in a Jewish home. We went to Jewish summer camp. We went to art school and we were very involved in the arts. And that kind of really transferred into the the Native community in Toronto, really embracing us. My first foray into acting professionally was in the Native theatre community in, in Toronto. What was the Native community like in Toronto? Because I know it's the relationship of Canada to First Nations, Indigenous people, Native communities is is pretty profoundly different from how it is in America. I mean, in America, the typical, we'll say, white perspective on Natives, unless they live near them, is typically that they don't think about them. But was there a kind of identifiable Native community in Toronto? Yeah, totally. The theater and film community in Toronto was very strong when I was starting out. Toronto used to be a very affordable place to live, so people could live here and be artists. Now the situation has changed a bit. There's been kind of like a few times in the last 25 years where there's been this like indigenous renaissance with like art or film or theater. And I think I stepped into it at a time, you know, about 20 years ago when I was like just kind of finishing up high school and stuff that it was really something beautiful that was happening. And there was a lot of hope and there was a lot of content and there was a lot of people working in the industry. But I would say politically, I was still always outside of that community, like the only Native person wherever I was. So I think even though it was in policies and politics, and my mom's husband has been a policy advisor for for so long, he's Mohawk, I was able to see it through that perspective where it was constantly fighting just to be heard for like anybody else that was Canadian to just care about what was happening in our communities, including, you know, the water crisis, the suicide crisis, all these things that were like really everyone was kind of tackling. So 
I'd say the majority of people still like didn't know that we existed and didn't care. And when they heard about it on the news, it was just like something. It was like Canada's native people. It was like seemed like something mm-hmm. really far away. One question I have on that, and again, this speaks to my own non-native ignorance, is the extent of amity amongst different tribes, right? So you said you're Anishinaabe, which is a branch of Ojibwe, you said? Yes, Ojibwe, yeah. But then your your stepfather's Mohawk. And then, you know, there's, of course, dozens, if not hundreds of tribes and sub-tribes. And, you know, you're on this show that I've read, you know, was filmed in Oklahoma using so much native talent, but I assume from many different tribes and I assume from different traditions and we don't want to homogenize and say, so therefore they're doing Indian because like that's whitewashing like thousands of micro strands of creativity. Are there enough commonalities that you can do something that feels native or, you know, indigenous, but that, that somehow still respects the fact that like, as with Judaism, there's so many different traditions within that. There are definitely commonalities and we don't want to um, do like that, what you're talking about this like pan Indian story, but also we're working in a medium where the focus is on, you know, story and character and there are definitely similarities that, you know, I find with my character, Rita, you know, I'm not a mother, but I have a native mother. And there's certain things that, you know, can kind of inform me on that character. My mother's family came up through Oklahoma. So how many years ago that was, you know, after the Trail of Tears and they came up to Canada through um, the prairies. So I feel like even just in our DNA, there are certain memories of when we were all more connected than we are now before we were kind of isolated into our communities there are things i think that are really universal for us and even viewers just in terms of talking about family dynamics and community dynamics and being a kid in a community that like you just don't want to be in so i think that we're in a time where like specificity is so important for representation but you really have to find that balance of like okay so then how do we how do we respect that and then how do we also kind of just t- tell a great story so will you tell us a little bit about your character, Rita? Could you tell us about, you know, what you've you've tapped into for that role and sort of what you've learned from it? <laughs> I love Rita. Oh, I love Rita. It was nice to step into something that was a little bit outside of my comfort zone because she's really tough. And I'm not like, I'm so like, I'm like so empathetic. And like, I always cry and I'm just like so emotional. So it's it was challenging to know. I really had to look into myself to find like that toughness. And I totally was just channeling my mom because my mom is like so incredibly generous and, you know, beautiful and funny. And then she has this really tough exterior from growing up the way that she did. And, you know, she's a fully brown indigenous woman. And I've seen the way people look at her when we go to stores and they follow her with their eyes. And I've seen her enter stores and like already kind of with this tenseness to her. And After years of seeing that, like, she has to have this kind of hard exterior sometimes, but even still she carries, like, that beauty and joy. It was something that I just, I was able to access really, really easily to know that this woman is an incredible mother and she would do anything for her child. But she'll also, like, kick you in the face if she needs to. The fact that you as a bunch of Canadians came down to colonize us to make this show. (laughs) uh, I've got to ask about that. It's it's (laughs) offensive. It's really... (laughs) You know, we're we're going to grant you some latitude here. We're just going to put a pin in that for the moment. But tell us about your feelings about America. Do you know what's really interesting is that I finally feel like Canadians are waking up to the fact that they're not as rosy as we think we are and as everybody else thinks we are. I think this last year and a half, especially that I've witnessed in Canada, is people understanding like our dark history of colonization and residential school and 
and systemic racism against all marginalized communities in Canada. So I think coming to the States for me was never like so different because I always growing up in Canada within the Indigenous community understood Canada to be a very flawed place. When I come to the U.S., it's not like this shocking thing. And there was one thing that I always appreciated being in the U.S. is people that I, my friends and people that I met where I was like, yeah, you know, we know that we're complicated and we know that we're messed up and we know that we have racism. We know we have this. But there was always kind of an awareness of the complications that there were to be like American. Coming to Tulsa was interesting because my husband and I were there. We were there for eight weeks. We fell in love with Tulsa. There was an incredible feeling that was happening there. I believe it was 100 years of Black Wall Street. And there was a lot of educating about that, which like I didn't have any idea about. And there was a lot of celebration for the community that had been thriving, essentially, in, in Tulsa since that horrific event. And I saw a really incredibly vibrant Black community and Indigenous community. And I was really moved. Like my husband and I are like, we need to move to Tulsa because there, it felt like there was a huge shift going on. And I got to be on a set where like there were so many Native people, which that has just never happened before. So my association with that was really positive. And being in Oklahoma, I felt like I felt like I was home. Hmm. You sort of described growing up, you know, largely in the Jewish community. What was it like sort of having this sort of other side to you in many ways in those Jewish spaces? Because I had my two older sisters, I was able to kind of like step into that that world with everybody kind of knowing my family history. You know, we, my grandfather came from Poland. He's a Holocaust survivor and he was part of Hashem Hatzir, which is a Jewish youth movement that started in Poland and then ended up continuing with Hashem Hatzir in Israel when they moved to Israel. And then when they moved to Toronto, my dad went to the summer camp. We like got together every Friday and then me and my sisters ended up going to that camp. And so there was just an understanding of who we were. Everybody knew my father. Everybody knew, you know, that my parents were divorced and I always felt super accepted and loved. So it was a really positive experience, but there was always kind of a feeling that I wasn't the same as everybody else. I never heard this from people that I was friends with in this movement, but I know, you know, that if from a religious context, you know, I was converted when I was younger. We were, you know, we were converted to Judaism because our mother isn't Jewish. So there was kind of also this thing that I had heard that like I technically wouldn't be considered Jewish, you know, in certain in certain crowds. So there was there was kind of a feeling of, although I felt accepted and everybody accepted me, there was just something in my head that I always felt like I didn't quite fit in. I was a little bit different. You know, Sarah, something that I think about a lot in this representation conversation is like, it seems unfair that we should have you on. I mean, we talk about everyone's background when they come on, right? Jewish and non-Jewish. We say sort of like, what what is it? But you said in the beginning, right? Like you want to put this out there because you want to basically be a, a person that someone can come to with questions. That seems like a lot of work. And you're an actor, right? Like we want to sort of talk about your work. So how do you feel as someone who, you know, I think it's important to be spotlighting everyone's particular heritages, but does it add to, do you want to just be out promoting your, you know, of course your show is about Indigenous people. So that, that sort of complicates it a little bit, but are you ever just like, I'm an actor, talk to me about my work? That's an interesting question because I feel like my identity is like so intertwined with my work. It's hard to imagine even not talking about it because like if I've been in this career almost, I mean, I started off as a, you know, when I was 12, I've always had to educate people about my identity. I've always had to explain why my lived experience is different from theirs. So it's just really, it's part of like my experience in this industry. I always have to be talking about it. I'm excited for the day that I can show up on set. And this happened with Reservation Dogs, where 
I don't have to like prove my lived experience to anyone. I don't have to change a line and be like, trust me, I wouldn't say that. Or like my mother wouldn't look like that. Or I wouldn't have like this on my wall because you think that I'm like a native person that has like, you know, a picture of sitting bull next to a dream catcher, next to a star blanket, like all these things that like- All of it. You've got all of it. All of it. And I've come into sets- A hundred years worth of stereotypes on on your wall, right? And I've been that character where I come onto set into like my apartment, my character's apartment. And I'm just like, nobody knows who native people are. Like nobody has any reference. No one has been into a native home. Like, you know, so- I do sometimes fantasize about that, about that idea of like, oh my God, I can't wait to just like go and be an actor. And like, because I'm thinking about all these political things that are going to happen. I'm thinking about all the times that I've been gaslit. I'm thinking about all the times that nobody's trusted my lived experience and and from a white perspective has like tried to tell me that, you know, this is the way that things are done. So there's like a responsibility to it. I feel like there's a responsibility to do that for so many Indigenous performers but I also know that I have the time and energy right now to take it on. So I'm going to do it so that hopefully it's just, there's just more awareness about it for the next person who comes up. Cause I know that like the last 30 years of indigenous actors have done that for me. Producer Josh is chomping at his microphone with a question. And since he's the biggest super fan of all of us, we're going to let him have one. <laughs> um, you, you talk about teaching people about the culture. And I thought one of the elements of the show that is super interesting is there were certain things of slang and otherwise that were were introduced, particularly like Skoden. Was that just part of the script? What little bits of, you know, whether it was Bear Spirit Guide or even the angel devil type character of you on your shoulders? Like, how did that get introduced? And what feels responsible so that you're not making a cartoon about it? Yeah, I mean, Skoden and Studis has been like in our language for a really long time. It's just like... Give people who haven't seen the show just a translation for those. Yeah, oh, it's like, let's go then. Like, let's go then. Instead of saying, let's go then or let's do this. It's, you know, in the res accent, Studis, Skoden. Also go on then, Gwanden. There's like just a lot of language things that we just, that we just have that weren't... It's funny because it wasn't new to us. <laughs> And to see people's reaction to it is so incredible. And it's just sharing those like little intricacies that are totally normal for us to use on a daily basis. The writers are really brilliant in that way. You know, they came up with these concepts in a really smart way to kind of invite you into a world that you don't know, but through humor will let you into and you won't feel isolated. You will feel like you're part of the joke. Reservation Dogs is just an invitation. It's an invitation and you can take it and you can join us and you can experience this incredible world that we get to live in. It was interesting to me as somebody who wants to come at these stories with sensitivity. It felt like if you had told me somebody was doing Bear's Spirit Guide, I would think that might be offensive. I'm kind of asking, how is that not offensive? Yeah, I think it's, you can see it similar like in, in Jewish film and TV. There's certain things that when Jewish people are writing our characters, we can get away with things because we know that like whether or not they're cliches and we're buying into it or we're kind of trying to course correct, when it's told by our perspective, there is a flexibility in it. And when you have Indigenous people in a writing room and they're finding creative ways to, I don't even know if it's subverting expectation, but it's kind of creating an environment where we can play with these ideas that are like, very present for people who are non-Native, play with them in a way that we're not making fun of the people who only believed that Native people exist in like this spiritual kind of romantic sense. It's a fine balance. I think the show does it really well, but it is a fine balance to be able to shed light 
but then also like dismantle narratives at the same time, which I think is very similar. I find in Jewish storytelling too. It's like our stories have been told for so long from a white lens, you know, non-Jewish lens and being able to have now, you know, Jews play Jewish characters and bring their lived experience to those parts and have Jewish people writing those characters, writing those stories. It just, it doesn't become kind of a stereotype of what we think Jewish people are. And that's the same for, you know, what's happening right now in Indigenous film and television is it's not coming from that lens anymore. It's coming from us. And when it comes from us, there's a flexibility of saying, you know, how can we dismantle these ideas in a really positive way? Could non-Native actors play Native parts on your show? A hundred percent no. A hundred percent no ever, which is in, in my opinion. And it, it happens all the time. Do you mean they'd fail, they would fail at it or they just wouldn't get, you guys would never cast non-Native actors? I can't speak for the creators of the show, but I would say that I would like to hope that because identity and representation has been such a big barrier to access for Indigenous actors for a really long time, there has been a push to have actors be able to identify their lineage so that we can, in a good way, move towards more inclusivity within the community. Because I think that there has been a lot of non-Native people or people with believed ancestry. They were told like family lore or all of these things, and then they present as being Native, but they're not. So a few of those people have been outed in the last few years. And it's been really difficult because we have so much talent in our communities and we have people that could bring a lived experience to these to these characters. And that's why I think Reservation Dogs is is so powerful, because like everybody is bringing a special, unique perspective to their characters. That gets so tricky, right? Because what if someone has one great grandparent who's native and they can prove it and it's established, but they grew up in an entirely assimilated and non-native setting? Would they be accepted on on set? So I think it's more about your, because we have always had kinship. You know, we have had kinship with non-Native people being in our in our communities and in our families. That's something that we have always had. I was taught that from my mom. I was taught that from my mom's father, you know, that we can adopt people into the community. So I think the complicated part is that it's such a hot market right now for Indigenous creatives and actors. There are a lot of people trying to take advantage of that. To sponge off that, hop on that yes. bandwagon. Uh-huh. Right. So I think it's it's not necessarily about like how native are you or how native aren't you. I mean, I'm sure there'd be many people that are like, you didn't grow up like for me, like I grew up essentially, I'm a white passing woman. You know, I grew up in a Jewish home. But I think it's just about like what's the work that you're doing within the community? How are you part of the community? If you want to benefit from using the microphone and taking up space, you better be showing up in the community. So I think that's more of the question is, how are you showing up for your community? If you want to be a representative and you want to be financially gaining from work, whether it's in academia or film and television or whatever it is, how are you showing up for the community? And I think that's a question that people are asking. Who are you? Who takes responsibility for you? Who's your family? These are things that we've always asked, you know. Sarah, we are talking to you mid-Hanukkah. This episode's going to air during Hanukkah. And you wrote something last year that I really loved, which you said, not sure why it's called the Festival of Lights. It should be called the Festival of Fuck Your Oppressor. So um, is that your Hanukkah vibe this year as well? I mean, yeah. I I just, (laughs) I kind of was like going back into like the story of Hanukkah last year. And I was like, this is about so many more things than the, the oil lasting eight days. 
And I kind of just, maybe just because I was in a feisty mood and I feel like the last two years I've just, you know, wanting to decolonize my own mind and try and get everybody else on board of, you know, what are, what are the real things that we should be fighting for? And I think that, you know, I grew up in a, in a Jewish home and an organization like a movement like Hashem Eretz which was always teaching us like fight for justice, fight for your community, you know, fight for a better future for yourself and your family. You know, when I wrote that, I was like, we always have to remember these things. We have to remember how hard that we fought to be here, how hard our grandparents fought to be here. And that I feel like even in my worst moments and my, you know, identity crisis and, you know, that I have and the moments that I'm just having total meltdowns, I remember that it's a total miracle and privilege that I'm here. You know, my grandparents on my mom's side survived residential school. There's a lot of children that didn't make it out there. We're, you know, over 7,000 bodies have been found in residential schools in Canada to this point. Like, and then there's my grandfather who survived multiple concentration camps. And it's just, you know, Hanukkah, yes, Festival of Lights, 100%. But it's also like, you know, resilience. And let's continue to be kind and continue to support each other and continue to spread joy and and just be good, be good to each other. So I think <laughs> it just hit me last year. And and even this year, yeah, it's something that I just try and carry on all year about being able to recognize how I'm here and the privileges that I've had to be able to do what I do and and share that, you know, share that message. Sarah Podemski, happy Hanukkah. It is Thanks. a privilege to talk to you. You are amazing <laughs> and we love the work you're doing. And just thank you for being you. Hanukkah Sameach. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Sameach. You'll have to replace this. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. 
Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolfe. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox. Leo, would you read our first letter? It harks back to a month or two ago when we were fielding the question of whether godparents are Jewish or Goyish. It's everything I could do not to read the rest of the letter in this voice. I have a godfather story. When my parents were young, they migrated to Philadelphia from Toronto in 1958. I was born a couple years later. My dad had an advisor in graduate school who he became very close with, Doug Bilby. He asked my dad if he could be my godfather. Doug was a Catholic. This made my father very upset. He wasn't sure what to do. My folks went to their rabbi, Mortimer J. Cohen, the unimprovably named Mortimer J. Cohen, for advice. The way my dad tells the story, Rabbi Cohen <laughs> stroked his chin and said, hmm, is he a good man? My dad confirmed he was honorable. He knows you're Jewish. My dad replied, yes, he is moving to British Columbia. When is he coming back? My dad said, who knows? Maybe never. Rabbi Cohen replied with something like, make them happy. Say yes. So I was always the only one of my Jewish friends who had godparents. What a story. <laughs> I want the movie rights Wait, for that. So that's a Cohen Brothers movie right there. Nothing so baller as asking to be someone's godparents. When I first read right. them, like I first skimmed this and I was like, he wanted the letter writer's father to be his child's godfather. No, no, he wanted right. to be the letter writer's godfather. <laughs> like, he was basically like, oh, you have a baby. I'd like to be its godparent. He may not have been circumcised, but he knew from chutzpah. Let me right. tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Bilby, if by any chance you are still with us, please call and, the show. And listening to this Jewish we podcast. We will send you a t-shirt. <laughs> you can be all of our godparents. That's right. <laughs> Janice from Junction, Texas writes in, Hey, y'all, I'm in my conversion process and we'll be having my baked in today, which means by now she's had it. So mazel tov, welcome home. I'm kind of nervous. I wish I had a Jewish sponsor too, like a godparent. I actually sent an email yesterday to a lady at PJ Library in San Antonio to see if there was an Adopt-A-Bubby program. Keep up the good work and glad the crew is back together. Love y'all and many blessings. Janice from Junction, Texas. I think this is real. I, I think there's real, there's legs to this. It is interesting, right, that you have a rabbi who is your, your teacher and, and prepares you for the Beit Din, for the three-judge rabbinic court, but they don't just give you like, you know, a bubby, a partner, uh, you know, a shepherd, a sandik. There are legs. I think that's really... I don't know. The rabbi who is teaching your conversion course is probably doing a ton of other things too. So it's not right. like they can like follow up with you a year later being like, hey, how's it going? I know we were like really in this intense relationship for a long time. And then you sort of, we sort of stopped, right? Because the course ended. But I think we should start doing this. We basically, we need like a sponsor for this program. And then we basically like bring someone who helps match you. It's basically like those dating Stephanie, things where like the grandmothers actually do it, but it's like an app. You didn't know this, Stephanie, because I'm the one who went through the voicemails, but actually- Quinn the Quintern, who is not with us right now for this taping, but who has talked on the show about how she is in the process of, of converting to Judaism, 
actually has an offer from someone who wants to be not so much her her conversion bubby, but her like her conversion big sib. Let's have a listen. I love that. Hey, producer Josh, this is amazing. I, I want you, Quinn's not here right now, but would you play this for Quinn and see how she reacts? Sure, Mark. Hey, Quinn, do you want to listen to this voicemail with me? Am I live reacting? Yup. Hi, Unorthodox. Uh, this is Monica DiLorenzo. I am calling to inquire about being Quinn's spiritual guide. Oh. Stephanie mentioned Vassar. I don't know if that's real, but I'm a Vassar alum of O7. Oh my God. Now an anesthesiologist in Westchester. And I actually discovered Judaism at Vassar and converted shortly after my graduation um, and started practicing there. I loved it. I went on my own spiritual journey and I've journeyed all the way to a much more atheist Jew. Sorry, Liel. And I'm trying to explore what that means. So I would love a partner for exploring. So if Quinn wants to get in touch, yeah, let's have a conversation. Love you guys. Take care. Bye. Oh my gosh. I'm so touched. I wonder if she had the same journey that I did as in like the same professor that I just treated as a rabbi, which then got me to want to convert. Oh my goodness. This is so fun. Monica, I will be reaching out. You will be hearing from me. We will go through this journey together. Wow. I'm so touched. That's so cute. This is even better because these are converts helping converts, right? Like this is basically like, I know exactly what you might be going through and I'm sort of like a bit ahead of you. So I love this. I'm being grateful. Got heat, got hot. What about my own fried food? We outside till we inside. We actually been fighting hatred and bigotry. Our whole lives had a slice of the life, but now I want the whole pie. Got a tip for every hater that don't tip the pizza guy. Thousands of years ago. And if you see Adam Sandler in the street, tell him, put me in the seam in the movie, yeah. New York Times op-ed columnist Ross Douthit joined us, and Liel sat down to talk with him not about conservative politics, not about the New York Times, but about Ross's new book, which I have also read, and it is beautiful. It's called The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery, and it explores his five-year fight against a disease that many people say doesn't exist, which is chronic Lyme. But we've come around Ross, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. You know, I'll be honest. Usually when we have people on, especially people we're excited about, we, we take care on the show. This is no secret to kind of, you know, construct an interview that makes sense to the listener that sort of takes you through the finer points of, of the book or of the guest and, and it's kind of packaged neatly. I find it really hard to do it because your book moved me so profoundly, not only because it was so incredibly well-written, not only because it was so candid and touching, but also because it spoke to something and I, I haven't myself been so forthcoming sharing it with our listeners, but the condition that I found myself grappling with for the past year and a half now. So let's try to reconstruct it step by step. The book begins... You are a man in full, a, a successful columnist for the New York Times, healthy, happily married, the father of, of young, beautiful children, about to leave the swamplands of, of D.C. for beautiful, rustic New England. And then you, you have something that at first sounds like a, like a minor irritation. Yes, I, I woke up with a, a little red swelling on my neck. And literally the exact same morning, my wife came in from the bathroom with a positive pregnancy test. And... We had just gone through this sort of real estate drama 
where we sold our house in D.C. and we bought that rustic New England retreat, but we were still in Washington. And yeah, there was this sort of moment of the pregnancy, our third child, this sort of sense that like this was sort of a, a peak moment, this kind of cascade of triumphs in our life. And there was just this small... <laughs> This little, this little problem on my neck that was very strange. It irritated my neck, but it was also like a little thorn in my mind sort of nagging at me. I wouldn't usually go to the doctor quickly for something, but I wanted to get back to feeling just terrific <laughs> about, about our life. And I went to a doctor at a walk-in clinic in Capitol Hill, uh, and he said, oh, it's a boil. It's, it's nothing to worry about. It'll go away. And it did go away. Well, then other things quickly got worse. <laughs> I started to have pain in my neck around where the boil had been, but not severe, just sort of weird stiffness and aches. And then that extended into my head, uh, and I started having headaches and weird pain in my teeth and my jaw. And then there was this evening a few weeks later, so where it just felt like my whole body went haywire. And I had pain all over. I had tingling and vibrations. Uh, my bowels turned to liquid. It was nighttime, I couldn't sleep, and I ended up going to the emergency room and they couldn't find anything wrong with me. And this was the beginning of this sort of, the first phase of the experience that the book describes, which is the total mystery phase, where I spent a few months in Washington, D.C., planning to make this move, terribly sick, and saw, you know, 10 or 15 doctors without getting anything like a, a plausible diagnosis for what was wrong with me. You write in the book, uh, I saw an internist, a neurologist, a rheumatologist. I had my stool and urine tested repeatedly. I had batteries of blood work done. I underwent cranial and abdominal scans and a tilt table test. Nothing is found until a suspect sort of emerges. Right. So I, we had bought a house in Connecticut. I had grown up in Connecticut. I knew a little bit about Lyme disease, this famous controversial tick-borne illness that people get when a tiny tick latches onto them and injects them with various <laughs> bacteria. And there was a piece in New York Magazine that described, it was sort of a first-person account or an interview by a guy who lived with Lyme disease for a long time without getting diagnosed and ended up having all kinds of heart problems to the point of having to get a heart transplant. So just a totally crazy story. But the some, you know, some of the descriptions of the symptoms seemed to fit. And so that, that was sort of my a working theory that I embraced for a little while in the summer, even though I didn't have a positive test for Lyme. The blood tests for Lyme disease are famously unreliable, especially early on. And I got a doctor to give me a very short course of antibiotics for it and took it and then immediately felt even worse and started having these phantom heart attacks. I ended up in the emergency room a few times. And so I sort of discarded that theory and switched to the theory that basically I was having some kind of psychiatric nervous breakdown, which was basically where most of the medical doctors that I saw that summer ended up sort of, you know, they would sort of put it gently. But, you know, the, the conversations always ended with, well, since we aren't finding anything wrong with you, right. you know, this is probably stress. Is everything okay at home? Is everything okay at home? You're under a lot of stress. You're a columnist for the New York Times. You're moving. You're having kids. Obviously, life is very difficult for you, which was not actually how I had felt. Life seemed pretty amazing. But but sure, things things are difficult. And 
you know, at a, at a certain point, you, I, I think there's this idea that, you know, the people who have chronic illnesses or mysterious illnesses are sort of resisting psychiatric diagnosis. And I sort of briefly resisted, but by August, I was happy to accept the diagnosis as long as someone could tell me what I should actually do about it. But then when I actually saw psychiatrists, and I saw one in Washington and then another one when we finally made the move to Connecticut somehow, they did not think <laughs> I had a psychiatric illness. Uh, the one in Washington said that he was sure that there was something physically wrong with me. He obviously didn't know what it was. And then in Connecticut, the psychiatrist said, as a number of doctors that I saw in Connecticut said, that she saw cases like this all the time and she was quite sure that I had a tick-borne illness. And so that was sort of the transition. Once we got to Connecticut, not just the psychiatrist, but, you know, the local family doctor that we saw and then some infectious diseases specialist that I saw who had more experience with Lyme disease said, you know, this is, this is probably what you have. So at that point, the story sort of switches from total mystery to <laughs> a story about the bizarreness of Lyme disease itself, which is this disease that there's huge controversy about what to do about it if you treat it for four to six weeks with antibiotics, which, of course, I did in the fall, uh, and you don't get better quickly. And there's a school of thought. And by school of thought, I should say this is the view of the Centers for Disease Control, right? This is sort of orthodox medicine that says if it doesn't get better with this course of antibiotics, further antibiotics aren't going to help. And, you know, we don't know what's happening. Maybe you have some kind of autoimmune problem, residual inflammation from the infection. Maybe you have, again, a sort of psychiatric problem. But either way, you shouldn't continue treating it as if you still have an active infection. Which in turn, we, we should say, as you describe well in the book, leads a lot of doctors to say, well, you know, according to the CDC, this is not a thing. Therefore, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I refuse to accept that the thing that you say might be the cause, namely Lyme disease, is actually a real thing. Yes. So as you, in the book, wonderfully and, and with a mind that's still adroit, even as the body falters, uh, as you sort of... <laughs> look at the origins of this truly spectacular, freaking weird disease. And, and you write a lot very beautifully about, you know, the bacteria, how it mutates. The thing that also goes on is a transformation in you too, right? I mean, from, from this kind of intellectual Harvard grad rationalist person who has reasonable trust in systems and institutions and, and you know, is quite sure that whatever it is, it will be discovered and it will be treated. To someone who increasingly finds himself open to all sorts of ideas and, and in time also treatments that only a year or two or three earlier would have made you laugh out loud because they would have seemed like complete quackery, right? Yes. So one, one thing that shifts very quickly when you become really sick in a way that isn't obviously treatable is that your risk-reward calculus changes. And so you become sort of by requirement, extremely open-minded about the things that you're willing to try. Because the normal risk-reward calculus, which is the one that sort of official medicine for good reason maintains, right? It says, you know, you're, the important thing is to make sure you aren't doing any harm in treatments. Therefore, you shouldn't be trying lots of treatments on the fringes of medicine because who knows what they will do. They could, you know, cause damage in various ways and so on. When you're really sick and your life is essentially unlivable, the idea that, you know, there is more risk in doing something than in doing nothing 
ceases to be a tenable way of looking at the world. And this is something that hopefully I convey successfully in the book. I think that when people look at what gets described as chronic illness from from the outside, and, you know, some chronic illnesses have obviously have pretty clear and well-understood causes. Others do not. There's tons of debate around things like chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. And now we, of course, have a similar debate about so-called long-haul covid But from the outside, it's pretty easy, I think, to look at these things and say, okay, you know, these people report fatigue or they report headaches or they report body pain. But if you look at like the general population, you know, 20% of people say they've had a headache in the last three months. You know, 37% of people say they have some kind of fatigue. So these chronic illnesses are just sort of stronger expressions of normal distribution patterns of feeling not that great in the general population. And that's not right. (laughs) But it's really hard to understand why it's not right until you actually get sick yourself, right? That it's, you know, before I was sick, I had headaches. Usually they were from when I was younger from drinking too much. But, you know, you get occasional headaches, you get fatigue. We had little kids. I was tired all the time. You get aches and pains here and there. There is a normal, a sort of normal distribution pattern of those kind of symptoms. With these serious chronic illnesses, your life is destroyed. You cannot function as a normal human being in the world. And that takes different forms. For some people, it's, you know, you're sleeping 16 hours a day right? Which whatever it is, is not the equivalent of feeling more fatigued than average. In my case, it was mostly body pain. I had fatigue issues here and there, but it was mostly that every day at every moment, basically some part of my body felt wrong in some way. And a lot of the time it was sort of unendurable seeming pain that would come and go and move from my shoulder to my neck, to my feet, to my head, to my bowels, and and so on. And what always felt like was a pattern that almost seemed predictable, like there was some kind of pattern there of when things would happen, but you could never quite get a handle on it, even if you were charting your symptoms meticulously. But, But either way, in my case, because it was pain rather than fatigue, I could still write newspaper columns. <laughs> I could still do some sort of functional things that I that I needed to do, and I was very fortunate in that. But the ordinary experience of life that you don't appreciate until it's taken away from you, of like just enjoying a meal, sitting in front of the TV, watching a TV show, playing with your kids, hanging out with your spouse— all of these things just sort of are just sort of throttled. They vanish. And as you write, it's not just that they vanish, but also that those around you find themselves in a deeply complicated situation. Allow me a quick quote. You're right. When the crisis simply continues without resolution, when the illness grinds on and on and on, well, then a curtain tends to fall because there isn't an obvious way to integrate that kind of struggle into the realm of everyday life. In other words, your wife, first and foremost, but also, you know, your family and and, and your friends find themselves as helpless with this condition as you are. People tend to respond pretty well in periods of sort of obvious crisis. And whether that means, you know, the aftermath of a hurricane for society writ large or, you know, a cancer diagnosis or a death in the family, you know, something where there's a discrete challenge and clear and obvious ways to help. But when someone you know and love just feels like shit every day, right? Like 
there's no sort of thing that you can do. I mean, you can make meals for them or something, but, you know, at some level they could make meals for themselves, right? And you're not going to do that eternally on a multi-year timescale or anything like that. So there's a sort of, yeah, there's a kind of helplessness in the face of this kind of problem from people who are sort of in your inner circle of friends and family. And then for the people who are in intimate life with you, and in this case in particular, my wife, who was trapped with me, really, because we had moved to this this country house where... You know, we never met our neighbors. We had, you know, these sort of acres of land <laughs> and barns and stone walls and all of these things that were useless to us now that we were scared to let our kids play in the fields. You know, so she's sort of trapped there with me. And she can help me to some extent, but there's limits to it. And meanwhile, I am constantly imposing my misery, verbally or non-verbally, on her and the children, but we're trying to protect the children, so it mostly falls on her. And then, of course, you have the, you know, the reasonable question of my husband has a disease that official medical science doesn't acknowledge that he can't seem to get better from and has a new theory about how to treat every month. You know, am I really just living with Jack Nicholson in the Overlook Hotel, <laughs> right? Like, that's it's a totally reasonable question to ask. What do you mean? You were always the bartender here. <laughs> <laughs> You've always been the caretaker. And I mean, this is why, you know, people who have these illnesses, marriages break up and families fall apart. And ours fortunately didn't, but the kind of stress it imposes is just tremendous. Now, all this is going on as several other big kind of national, international dramas also unfold in the background, right? First of all, this is happening as Donald Trump runs for and eventually wins the presidency. And as a, a political columnist, this is something that you sort of see and feel fading in and out of your personal dramas a little bit. I got sick in, you know, June of 2015. So just before Donald Trump came down the escalator in the Trump Tower and American politics was transformed. And, you know, I'm Roman Catholic and write a lot about the church. And there was a ton of drama surrounding Pope Francis and sort of debates within Catholicism that sort of also started to peak around the time that I got sick. There's some part of your mind in that kind of condition that's always trying to draw links and connections between your own sickness and the craziness in the world. You get sort of delusions of grandeur where you think, ah, I've gotten sick because, <laughs> because I have some important role to play in these great debates and uh, somehow my sickness is connected to that, right? Like your mind cultivates those kind of delusions when something like this is going on. There's also something particularly weird about being engaged in the these debates just at the moment that you've left Washington, sort of left the center of power where I had lived and had my career for 13 years. And you're living in the, you know, in the woods, basically, right? So you're sort of cut, you're cut off from everything. You're terribly ill and you're constantly having to comment on the transformation of American politics, the war over the future of the Republican Party, all of these things. While not, I mean, I very deliberately did not really write about anything that I was going through back then. So you have this sort of private drama that is almost certainly manifesting itself somehow in your commentary on the public drama, but presumably in ways that are sort of subconscious and not fully understood even as you're doing the writing. Definitely my general writing style or analytic style is probably sort of 
calm to the point of being unreasonably calm about <laughs> developments in the world. But it was certainly less calm writing about both the Pope and Trump in the years when I was at my sickest. And I'm sure that's not a coincidence. I wonder, though, if, if at some point in your mind, the general brokenness uh, of your own life and the general brokenness of the world seem to coincide. I, I'll be candid. And again, this is not something I shared with our listeners before. I got a copy of your book and started reading it while sitting in a medical clinic being injected with radioactive substance, undergoing test number 387 in what was a year that as soon as I started reading your book felt incredibly similar to your own. The same little irritation that I thought nothing of, followed by weeks and then months and then almost a year of, of like absolute brokenness of, you know, loss of appetite that reduced my body mass by a third, by chronic pains, by not responding to antibiotics, by chills, by bowel issues, everything uh, that you describe. Again, fortunately, on a slightly more condensed timeline. But I've lived through this. And, and like you, I trusted the medical establishment completely. And like you, I found myself going to doctors who increasingly said to me, well, there's no such thing as chronic Lyme disease. So you must be suffering some kind of mental breakdown, which was both incredible and insulting. I'm, I'm Israeli. So unlike you, there's never a phase in which I said, hmm, they might be right. I was like, no, you're wrong. What, what, what do you mean? And to see this as the kind of the the entire world was was seemingly teetering. I want to read to you one, one more quote from your book and, and then ask you to sort of comment on it. You write, my own case to one side. The coronavirus era soon came to feel like a shattered mirror of the tick-borne epidemic and its controversies, with different pieces of the Lyme wars reflected and refracted in different aspects of the worldwide COVID crisis. Things that came as a surprise to people for whom modern medicine was still a stable floor, the testing that didn't work, the confident medical advice that had to be reversed and then reversed again, the wild uncertainty about how and for how long a single pathogen's symptomatic effects might manifest themselves were completely unsurprising to me by now. So is there a sense as you kind of live through this and, and you see things that you experience personally sort of manifest themselves on the largest imaginable global scale? Is there a sense that just makes you stop and think, wow, like I, I almost received a kind of preview to this general brokenness that now seems to be everywhere? Yes, I think so. But it's very complicated, right? Because, I mean, the, the whole COVID era is so strange because you have, on the one hand, all of these sort of manifest to the point of being catastrophic failures of sort of public health messaging and this intense trust the science confidence with which pronouncements are offered and, you know, are then reversed and so right. on, right? Well, one thing that I try to argue in the book and do fundamentally think is that with Lyme disease, as wild and complicated as the disease is and as crazy as some of the things are that I tried to treat it, at the core, there is this argument where there's sort of an insider consensus view that I think is just wrong. And there's this sort of outsider medical view that I think is just simply right, <laughs> right? Like there is a certain simplicity to it. I think chronic Lyme disease is quite real. The bacteria does persist and you can treat it over longer periods of time and get better from it. I think all that is true. And with COVID, it, I don't think there is something quite 
that simple. Like, I think the insiders have gotten all kinds of things wrong. But then I think the outsider view, there isn't some coherent outsider view that I think is right. And in fact, I think the outsider, you know, the sort of Alex Berenson style skepticism of everything that the medical establishment comes up with has itself been disproven repeatedly, right? Like there were sort of at the outsider voices early on, I think totally underestimated how many people were going to die, even as the insiders were overestimating how many people are going to die. So in in a weird way, I've found it, I, I think there are clear parallels between the two cases, but oddly, Lyme, Lyme disease sort of actually provides slightly firmer footing, <laughs> right, in certain ways. Right. Then, you know, with, with COVID, I, you know, I listened to Anthony Fauci's latest interview where he says, you know, I represent science. <laughs> like, come, come on, man, right? But then there isn't some, if I look at like the Amazon bestseller lists in books about medicine, which I do occasionally look at now that I have a book out, right? And I can see the books that are like the truth about COVID revealed. And I don't think those books are right either. So anyway, that's that's a sort of long-winded way of saying that oddly, I feel like there's a firmer place to stand in the chronic Lyme debate than there has been in the COVID debate so far. And and not to reduce a book that is so rich with with wonders and complexities to sort of one talking point, but but the one thing I took away uh, from it, which which again I think is is deeply lacking in the COVID discussion, in which any attempt to raise a question that lies just you know a half an inch away from the established consensus of that moment is treated as a sort of conspiracy theory anti-vaxxer manifesto. You advocate some kind of, of openness. You write, for example, about going to see a woman you call the magnetizer, uh, whose treatment you know, really deserves to be read. It's wonderful. And you admit candidly that you know, pre-sickness you would have dismissed this woman as a complete fringe figure. And then you write, my new self regarded her radical openness rather differently as a feature of the kind of mind that was more likely than the rest of us to grope its way to veil or disreputable truths. You say, give this mind too much freedom. And yes, eventually it could go to like chemtrails and helicopters in the sky. But you're right, exclude such openness entirely. And you end up with a mindset that I had encountered across my months of frustration, where the absence of an exact test result matching a set of bureaucratic criteria meant that doctor after doctor after doctor would spread their hands, hint that you were crazy, and abandon you to pain. So did that kind of give you somewhat of a different shift or tack as you kind of write about these big uh, life issues? Did this, this kind of emotional insight stay with you? Absolutely. One, I, have, I now just have an assumption that on any matter of sort of any contested medical debate, there's going to be something that's outside the mainstream, outside the consensus that's probably true. You know, and that probably is an overstated assumption. There are probably cases where the consensus is 100% perfectly correct, or at least 99%. But the reality is, I think that you should go into any any debate, and this isn't just true of medicine, go into any debate and you should assume that there's something that's sort of outside the consensus, outside mainstream respectable opinion that is probably true and has probably grasped something that official consensus doesn't grasp. But then the challenge is <laughs> to have that assumption without dismissing the official consensus entirely. Right. Um, the danger of radical openness is that you become radically open, but people can't stay radically open forever. So then they sort of close up again in some new way and say, having found these truths that the medical establishment won't acknowledge, 
I will now assume that anything the medical establishment says is corrupt, right? Like you, you get that a lot in the debates over chronic Lyme, for instance, like people who I think are fundamentally right about the science will say, well, we need to find the the money trail or the conflict of interest that right. explains why the establishment won't acknowledge the reality of chronic illness here. We need to find big Lyme and, and how they right, stand to right. benefit. And, and obviously, like, there are these incentives, but more often it's about just the way consensus works, the way it ratifies itself through institutions and bureaucracies. That's much more important than some sort of cynical, you know, ha-ha, I'm, I'm making money off this, so I won't, I won't say what I believe to be the truth. And yeah, you see this with COVID, right? Where there's there are so many legitimate criticisms of Anthony Fauci, but fundamentally he's not lying to people about vaccines because he's, you know, in the pocket of Pfizer or something. That's not what's going on. But finding that balance, I think, is is really hard. I'm sure I don't strike it successfully myself all the time. But I think it is helpful to when you take a step outside the mainstream to always have in the back of your mind a sense that the mainstream is getting things right. <laughs> it wouldn't be the mainstream if it weren't getting some things right. We don't live in sort of the Lysenkoist Soviet Union as much as some of my conservative friends yeah, may, about to say, think at, that at, we do. At least not yet. Now look, as if striking this balance wasn't difficult enough, the book speaks of another balance that you sort of grapple with, which is which is the balance of, of the role of faith here, right? On the one hand, this kind of acceptance of, oh yes, suffering as some kind of purging, divinely inspired mechanism. And on the other, the, the human desire to just heal. How did your own faith, what part did it play in, in this epic? I mean, it was very, very helpful in a way that I think is, you know, sort of probably not surprising and in certain ways vindicates a kind of atheist's critique of religion, right? I, I quote Jesse the Body Ventura, <laughs> In the book, he has that, you know, he had some line, I think in an interview with Playboy, where he said, ah, religion, I'm not religious. That's just a crutch for weak people. And I mean, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It turns out that when you're at your worst, religion is a crutch. And it is, regardless of its truth or falseness, it is tremendously psychologically beneficial to be able to believe that this is happening for a reason, that you are living in a story that is not, your life is not just sort of a random series of events, but you are being tested in some way. And if you can sort of get through the test, you will be better for it in some way that you can't quite understand while it's going on. So that was very important. At the same time, it's not sort of a fully comforting way of looking at anything because, of course, if that's the case, there's no reason to assume that the test will will magically stop one right. day, right? In fact, why not a bigger test? <laughs> why not a bigger test? test? Just right. look at look at the look at the escalation in Job, right? right. First, hey, you, you, know, you take away his farm, right. you take away his family, <laughs> you afflict him with boils, and, oh, and similarly in you know in the lives of the saints in my own Catholic tradition, you have. I guess in certain ways, my my main hope was that I wasn't holy enough <laughs> to be tested maximally, right? That God had to go a little easy on me at some point because I just wasn't up to sort of the the full rigors of. It's the, like the old the old rabbinic wisdom, meaning you know, God, please send us the Messiah to end times, but but not in my days. Yeah, that's right. Let right. other people deal with it. So that's yeah. So that's there was certainly that this sort of fear of what God might do might do next. But then to your point too, yeah, there was this sort of 
this balance where, on the one hand, theologically, you're supposed to sort of find a way to live with suffering, right? To sort of accept that it might not be taken away from you and you have to figure out ways to sort of endure and not expect the miracle cure, pray for it, but not expect it. But at the same time, there was no way to achieve that unless I got, in my experience, unless I got somewhat better. The worst of it, I I don't think I ever would have found a way to sort of live with it in some balanced way. It was just too destructive, the level of pain and suffering involved. So in, in that sense, you have to fight, right? You can't just accept. You have to fight. And so a bunch of the book is about what it's like to fight and, you know, to have find the right doctor and do your own research, <laughs> as we say now. And, uh, and in that sense, you know, the book does have a sort of Promethean side where you are trying to use the gifts that human beings have and that the human race has to to bend the natural order to your will and not just suffer whatever its, you know, its tiny ticks have to deal out. And I, and I do think that has shifted somewhat my own way of thinking about certain debates about like, you know, sort of how compatible is the religious life with modern civilization and so on. Well, I'm less of, there's sort of a pastoralist tendency or temptation among the traditionally religious in the modern world. This sense that like the modern world is corrupt and technology has cost us more than it's given us. This isn't necessarily sort of dogmatically Christian, but you get it in writers like Wendell Berry, sort of the agrarian tradition in American conservatism. You know, I probably wouldn't have moved to the country if I didn't feel a certain attraction to that sense that like the good life is one lived in sort of rhythms and harmonies with nature and all of these things. But once nature has basically tried to kill you, (laughs) you you end up having more sympathy for the modern project and thinking more about, well, what is, you know, how can you sort of incorporate a religious critique of technological modernity into an appreciation for what technology accomplishes and what it might accomplish in the future? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I probably think more about that balance and how to strike it than I did before I got sick. So look, we have a, we have a, an audience full of Jews. This, this may come as a shock to you, but we worry a lot. So I've never noticed that among my, among my Jewish friends. No one would forgive me unless I concluded by asking you, how are you feeling now? Well, I, I'll tell you, but only if you tell me how you're feeling first. I am doing much, much better. I am still incensed that not among the many fine practitioners who I'd seen, whose number is as much like yourself now, now numbers in the dozens have yet to stop and take this assertion seriously and, and actually at least have what I would assume is the backbone of the scientific method itself, which is the openness to or the willingness to doubt dogma, the openness to to other hypotheses, at least you know, in, in the absence of of any solid proof, I remain physically much better, thank God. Yet I remain emotionally and intellectually shaken because I feel, and and I think that the, this proximity to COVID in my own mind that forever seeks religious metaphors and everything is not coincidental. It is yet another reminder uh, that, as you said, yes, nature might be trying to kill us, but the modern construct uh, of which we had grown too sinfully proud and and certain is not at all uh, immune to its whole failings. I I think the balance that you speak of, of maintaining both your faith and your reason in the face of everything being broken is considerable. But I think the first step for me, and it's a very difficult step, is admitting that everything is broken, that it's not some pendulum that's swinging, that it's not 
some edifice that we could fix, that it's not just, oh, if we only change this definition in the CDC or this way that the institutions do this or that or the other, but rather that we've reached a point in which a host of our assumptions, a host of our values, a host of our platforms and methodologies are all crumbling and that we need a reevaluation that probably has to learn a lot from faith. Uh, other than that, I'm fine. <laughs> okay, that's a good, that's a good answer. Um, How are you? I am better than I was when I finished writing the book. And I usually say that I'm 90 to 95% better. The truth is that what that means varies sort of day to day and week to week. So I have stretches where my symptoms consist of, you know, actually do now consist of sort of twinges and aches and pains, right? The, the kind of thing that are sort of more part of the normal distribution of mild, annoying forms of suffering. But then I still have certain vulnerabilities where if I get a cold or, you know, get stung by a wasp or, you know, the, these kind of things, I can still, things sort of resurface in my body that are otherwise suppressed. But the book, I think, is a little bit ambiguous in the end about whether I am still striving towards full health or making my peace with certain you know, residual things that will never go away. And I guess I still live in that ambiguity. But at the most conscious level, I intend to get fully well. Well, let me tell you what, what, I, what I know will help. What I know will help is every person listening to us right now buying and reading this book, which I am not kidding right now. Uh, the Deep Places, it, it is one of the most moving, meaningful accounts I have ever read, not only of illness and living with it, but also of, of, of what it means for body, for soul, for society. It could not, as you might have gleaned from this conversation, be more timely. It is in many ways the account of the challenges and struggles that all of us, healthy or sick, deal with now. Russ Douthat, what a pleasure having you on. Thank you. That's incredibly kind of you to say. So thank you. And and yes, there is no there's no mitzvah greater than the purchase of a book in time for Correct. whatever holidays are being celebrated. <laughs> Healing the sick by good old commerce. <laughs> Mazel tovs. Leo, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have a mazel tov, not to a person, Mark. My heart is so large with gratitude and giving of thanks and, and joy and the light and warmth of the menorah. I wish to extend a mazel tov to an entire country. We have not yet spoken about this. Maybe we'll get there soon. But I recently visited for the first time because Israelis only very recently were allowed to travel to the gorgeous kingdom of Morocco. Uh, and it is truly one of the most incredible places I've ever been. And I've been places. And so to the whole country of Morocco that greeted me with open arms and made me feel so loved and at home, shukran. Stephanie Butnick, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have a semi-belated happy birthday to super listener, friend of the show, Ilana Storch. Down at Storch Ranch in Scottsdale, she had us over for dinner when we were there for our live show. I, one year or two years ago, I actually don't remember when that was, but she's great and we love her and just want to say happy birthday. Happy birthday, Ilana. And before we let you go. Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. We are so sad to share the news. I guess we shouldn't be sad. He, he lived a good long life, 91 years old. You could hardly ask for more Sondheim than that. 
but uh, somehow it doesn't seem like enough. Uh, there have been a lot of beautiful tributes written this week about Stephen Sondheim, who died at the age of 91. But I want to add my own, and it's uh, entirely idiosyncratic and personal, as I think as I think any truly sincere comment about what art has meant to somebody has to be. Um, it hits you personally, and, and that's the only kind of real reaction to have. I was 15 years old and a sophomore in high school, and I always did theater in the fall when my high school did straight plays, not musicals. But in the winter when we did a musical, I never really knew what I could do because I couldn't sing. And when you can't sing, and I really can't sing, there's no role for you as an actor. But the beautiful thing about theater is is that there's so many parts, right? If it's a musical, there's the pit orchestra, and and if, no matter what it is, there's stage managers, the, the, the tech crew, the people who build the set. I signed on to our school's production of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, an early uh, Sondheim musical that he did the music and the lyrics for. And I signed on to that production as the property master. I had to find all the props, which actually ended up being a really hard job because it's a super prop-heavy musical. Anyway, that meant that I got to actually watch all uh, four nights of the show when my amazingly talented friends, and I'm thinking back to people like Jamie Dunlop and Adam Donchick and Bryn Will and Jennifer Lind and Adam Larrabee, and all, I got it, they were all so talented. I got to sit in the audience. I'd already found all the props for them. And so I just got to watch what this amazing cast put together. I will cop right now to a uh, talent crush, the singer whom I remember so well. She wasn't the person I was closest to in the cast. She was a couple years ahead of me. She was a senior. But I remember Julie Woolwich, who had one of the best singing voices at our school, had this fabulous solo in the second act. It's, it's really right near the end. She played Philia. And there's this wonderful moment in the song, That'll Show Him, when Philia sort of pauses and there's this syncopated beat. And she goes, that'll show him. And I remember Eileen first, who I think was the stage manager, would be up in the booth with me. And we would always look at her when she would hit those notes. And it was as if like everything in musical theater was working. The, the pit orchestra underneath her was great. She was beautiful. The choreography was great. And she was singing this song and the lyrics just kind of like shouted out across the room. They hit us in, way up in the booth in the back of the room. And it just felt like everything about theater was magical and working and transporting. It was totally transporting. I actually tried to track down Julie Woolwich on Facebook and get her to record this song, but having failed that, I'm glad that we have the original cast album with the great Preshi Marker uh, singing, that'll show him. Stephen Sondheim, you gave us this and so much more. You're singing for your old friends in the great beyond. now. I await the resurrection when we all get to put on another revival of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Good night, my friend. Send in the clouds. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, along with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. It's produced by Josh Cross with Robert Scaramuccia, Sara Fredman-Ader, and the Quintern, Quinn Waller. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you need last-minute Hanukkah presents, get Unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Episode art, as always, is by Esther Werdiger, and our theme music is by Golem. Rabbinic supervision by the lay leadership of Congregation Or Hatzafon in Fairbanks, Alaska. Stay warm up there, guys. Our latka frying consultant this week is Shauna Harris, and we we come to you from the scattered home satellites of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. <laughs>